Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb. The story of King David is a remarkable testimony of God's faithfulness to his people Israel. His life and faith journey point us to Christ, who is the promised king that would surpass David and save his people. You can find more information about this series at gatewaycrc.org. And now, here's this week's message. Hello, I am Brandon Gross. I have been a member of Gateway for eight years. I'm married to my wife, Christine. She's been coming to Gateway her whole life, so no pressure on me to catch up there. Um, we have two daughters, Isabel and Alexis. I serve on the tech team on Sunday morning, so you won't see me up here generally, but I generally serve as a camera guy, sound guy, or projector guy, or whatever they need me to be. I'm also a summit leader, so see you at the auction. Today's reading is 2 Samuel uh, 1 to 12. Uh, after the death of Saul, David returned from striking down the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklag two days. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay him honor. Where have you come from? David asked him. He answered, I have escaped from the Israelite camp. What happened? David asked. Tell me. The Men fled from the battle, he replied. Many of them fell and died, and Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Then David said to the young man who brought him the report, How do you know that Saul, his son Jonathan, are dead? I, have, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said, and there was Saul leaning on his spear with his chariots and their drivers in hot pursuit. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me and said, what can I do? He asked me. Who are you? And Amalekite, I answered. Then he said to me, stand here by me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood beside him and killed him because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm and have brought him here to my word. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son, Jonathan, and for the army of the Lord and for the nation of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Marcel Drecht, and I serve here at Gateway as the pastor of Faith Formation, and it is a joy and a privilege to open up God's word with you this morning. About a week and a half ago, Laura and Jenny and myself, we sat down with Dan Veneman from our church. And Dan is the banner correspondent for Southern BC. And the banner is a Christian Reformed Church magazine that goes out uh, to a number of Christian Reformed churches across North America. And Dan wanted to interview us um, to learn and to write about the struggles and the joys that we have as a church when we work with the Extreme Weather Shelter. And here's the perspective that the editor of the banner was looking for, and I quote this from Dan's email to us um, when he invited us to the interview. He says this, and I quote, when speaking with my editor about what types of stories they were looking for, she said something that made me think. She reminded us writers that God does not promise us that things will be easy. We are promised the opposite. In only sharing the success stories we are losing something important, end quote. During our 45 minutes with Dan, when we sat down with him, we shared all the struggles of the extreme weather shelter. 
We talked about the number of smashed windows that we've experienced this year. It's been quite a few. We've talked about the time when somebody came into our building and went straight to our check-in station and stole all our kids' church tablets plus our computers. Not just once, but three times this year so far. And then we talked lovingly about our friend Marvin, who unfortunately passed away at our shelter this season. These are just some of the stories that we've experienced over the last three months. As we sat there, we shared some of these stories in tears, but there's always times when we reminisced over the last three months that we also shared in laughter together. And for those here this morning that volunteer at the shelter, those watching online that volunteer at the shelter, staff or volunteers, I'm sure you have your own struggles that you deal with when working with those that are less fortunate in our community. I'm sure that when it's your time to serve in the shelter, you kind of wonder how many guests are going to come. Will it be 10 tonight or are we going to push our numbers up to 45, 50 guests in our gym? Are our guests going to come already high on drugs? Is that what we have to deal with? Or is there going to be somebody that's going to overdose on our watch? What's going to happen? And not to mention those that are on the night shift, they have to deal with the long, tiring nights where morning just doesn't seem to come and to work with our clients so that they can leave in the morning safe and hopefully a little bit happier. To you that serve in our shelter on a regular basis, we want to say thank you to you uh, for all the hours and all the work that you do volunteering to those and serving those that are less fortunate in our community. We want to say thank you to you for that. But Dad, Dan ended our, ended our interview with these thought-provoking questions. He asked this, how would you encourage somebody who is stuck in ministry. They're at the point where there's the break-ins and the overdoses and don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. How would you encourage someone to continue and not get stuck at that point? For a lot of ministries, you don't get the turnout, you don't get the buy-in. Things that seem like a great idea don't turn out how you expected. How do you deal with those type of situations? You know, here's the remarkable thing about our 45 minutes with Dan. All the stories that we shared ended on a positive note. The stories always ended about sharing a good story of a good memory, of, of people coming to the shelter, of our guests coming to the shelter and, and being delighted that our staff and our volunteers remembered their name when they walked into the shelter. We can call them by name, brings great joy. Or when we can serve them a meal in the morning. Or when we see our guests helping us clean up around the building, picking up things around our building. Or when we can watch 35, 40 people sleeping quietly in our gym when we know that it's minus 20 plus outside. What a joy it is to see that. Our shelter guests, they're people created in the image of God, who have a story. And their story may look different than our story in, in some ways, but in other ways, it really doesn't. Their story's not a whole lot different than my story, and it's not a whole lot different than your story. Our paths, they may look a little bit different. The circumstances surrounding the decisions we make might be different than yours and mine, but at the heart of it all, aren't we all the same? Our hearts longing for the redemptive work of Jesus Christ? Isn't that what connects us? Isn't, isn't that what motivates us as a church to keep going, to keep pressing on? And when the tough time comes, 
We remember the stories. We remember who God is. And God then instantly becomes the hero of our story when we talk about the extreme weather shelter. As the editor of the banner stated, she said, God doesn't promise that things are going to be easy. See, it's in our times of remembering our struggles that our joy could be so profound. It is in those struggles that we are often reminded of the, of the faithfulness of God. It is in those moments that we need to keep our eyes keenly fixed on Jesus Christ who is going to pull us through the storm. And this is precisely where we find David when we turn the page starting 2 Samuel. Because 2 Samuel, it begins with David dealing with struggles, dealing with sadness, and, and dealing with some serious mourning in his life. So Brandon, thank you so much for reading our text this morning and leading us in that. As we take a closer look and focus our time looking at that question that Dan asked earlier, how do we encourage each other in ministry and keeping Christ at the center of it all? As we walk through these chapters together this morning, we are going to see David's sadness. And in the midst of that sadness, in the midst of that mourning, we are going to look at two very valuable lessons that we can learn about David's leadership, which is a foreshadow of Jesus Christ's leadership that points us straight to who God is. So we can be encouraged in these two ways. Number one, we want to be encouraged to keep our eyes focused on God's plan, not ours. And the second thing that we want to look at this morning is that we want to keep our, our hearts focused on God, keep our hearts focused on the person and their story. Now, many of you may be thinking this morning that lessons of encouragement may not apply to you. I'm not a leader. I'm probably not going to be the next anointed prime minister of Canada. But I beg this morning to argue with you that you are a leader. In some way, in some shape, in some form, you are a leader in your community, or in your home. And this will apply to you today. See, you may be married, and you may have to provide strong leadership in your home. You may be a parent, and you have to provide strong and, and sturdy and steady leadership to your children. If you're a grandparent here today, you may have to provide a strong mental relationship with your grandchildren because they need a strong figure in their life. If you're a high school student, this will apply to you because you are called to be a leader in your classroom. You are called to be a leader in your peer groups. And that can't always be easy. And words of encouragement may be required today. If you own a business or, or work in a company of some sort, you need to be a leader to provide godly leadership in your company. You may have to talk in ways with your coworkers. That's not always so easy. But you are a leader for the sake of the gospel. It's not always easy. And you may need encouragement for that. If you volunteer for a ministry here at Gateway or elsewhere, you need to provide strong leadership in your youth mentorship groups, in your life groups that's starting up again, in GEMS, Cadets, EDGE, Summit, and you name it, fill in the blanks where you serve. You are a leader. Whether you officially take hold of the role or not, regardless of your age, regardless of your status in life, you are providing leadership and as a result can use encouragement to keep pressing on, to keep moving forward till tomorrow. See, because encouragement in leadership needs to reflect godly principles. Your leadership needs to tell the world that you are leading differently because of who Jesus Christ is. 
And these chapters of 1 through 5 of 2 Samuel provide us with lessons in leadership that allow our eyes to remain focused on who Jesus Christ is and that he will always be the hero of our story. So here's the first thing that we can learn. We need to keep our eyes focused on God's plan, not ours. We need to keep our eyes focused on God's plan, not ours. If you have your Bible still open, take a look at verses 14 to 16 of chapter 1. Here's what it reads. David asked him, Why weren't you afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of his men and said, Go, strike him down. So he struck him down and he died. For David had said to him, Your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testifies against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. So what's going on in chapter 1 here that would make David ask this, this heavy question? Why weren't you afraid to lift your hand against the Lord's anointed? Because that question tells us that David kept his eyes on God's plan and not his own plan and his own personal agenda. See, last week, Pastor Justin concluded our our time in 1 Samuel, Samuel 31, where we talked about Saul and Jonathan's death. Chapter 2 picks up the story of David now hearing about the death of Saul and Samuel, or Saul and Jonathan. An Amalekite comes running up to David, and he begins to tell him his version of what was going to take place or what has happened on the field. This man comes, his, his clothes are torn, there, there's dust on his head displaying all the signs of mourning. And he comes before David and he bows before the future king. And he pays him honor and he tells the good news of what happened. Saul is dead, Jonathan, David. Saul is dead. What news to bring to the future king, isn't it? I'm sure that the Amalekite thought this was going to be a blessing to David's ears. And the Amalekite goes on in his store and he shares in great deal what has happened. He says, many men have died. They've been slain in battle. And King Saul is now dead. And his son Jonathan, your beloved friend, he also is dead. Now if the Amalekite would have stopped there, things would have turned out a little bit differently. But he didn't. Because pride got in the way. He wanted to make a name for himself in front of the king. He had desires to be risen in the ranks. So he goes on and he embellishes the story a little bit. And he says, not only is he dead, but I'm the one that killed him. I'm the one that killed him, David. I killed Saul. Listen to the verses. It says this, then he said to them, or he said to me, this is uh, Saul talking, stand here by me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So the Amalekite then says, so I stood beside him and killed him because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm and have brought him here to my Lord. Can you just imagine for a moment, the Amalekite, all excited to come to uh, David. I killed him. <laughs> I'm the one. I'm the one that should be your right-hand man. I'm the one that killed the man that was, that was after you and tried to kill you, not once but numerous times. I'm the one that killed the man that made you look behind you at every move. I'm the one, David. I'm the one that shoved the spear into him. 
Oh, how deceived this young man was. See, an embellished story for personal gain ends in failure. It always does. Because by his own story, he convicted himself. He goes against what we learned about last week in 1 Samuel 31. He goes against what happened. Now, you would, be, you would think for a moment, wouldn't you, that, that David would have been happy about this news. He just received the news that his adversary was dead. And because of this news, David is now next in line to the throne. Whew, how exciting. Wouldn't it be for David? You think he would have been given a big cheer as to what was about to happen next. He could live with way less anxiety. He could live with way less fear. He no longer had to look over his shoulder at every move. He no longer had to hide in caves. At least that's what one would think, wouldn't you? That David would be happy. That David would be going about and he would be doing his little happy dance. He's going to get all excited. I'm going to be king. Now David doesn't dance yet. We're going to talk about that next week and you're going to see the man dance. But instead, David asked this convicting question. Why weren't you afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed. Now, if you have been following the series of the Shadow King, you will understand how much David values the anointing of God, the importance and the significance of being anointed. If you recall, Saul was, a, was anointed by Samuel to be the king of Israel. The people of Israel wanted to be like everyone else, so they asked for an earthly king. They asked for it, and God gave it to them, and God anointed Saul to take on the role to be the king of Israel. Saul was God's anointed to be the first king. And this was no joking matter. This, this was not something that you just want to brush off as insignificant. This was God's plan for Israel. It was the Lord that placed Saul as king. And it was the Lord who was to remove Saul as king at his appointed time. So when the Amalekite came to David with what he thought was going to be good news, David kept in mind God's plan for Israel and not his own plan. David didn't want what the Lord didn't give him. He wouldn't take by force what God promised him. You know, it would have been easy for David to celebrate, but he didn't. He did just the opposite. So countercultural, isn't it? David kept his eyes keenly fixed on the bigger God plan that was at play for Israel and not his own personal agenda. He had God's plan in mind all through chapter 1, which makes God the hero of the story in chapter 1. You know, so many of us, myself included, make the mistake of feeling that, that we need to help God in fulfilling his promises. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we would just have a little Amalekite person come running up to us and saying, we fixed your problems. I got them. Don't you worry about it. I got it. Wouldn't that be nice? And we'd help them along the way and we'd encourage them to do it again. We want to help God. We feel we need to help God. So often we make that mistake in life, don't we? We want to rush things. We want to rush God's plan in our life. And we try to do things and we try to figure out things on our own without trusting God and relying on God that his timing is perfect. And when those moments come, and I'm sure you have them because I certainly have them, 
we need to remember these words from 1 Chronicles 29 where it says this, yours, Lord. Yours is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom and you are exalted head over all. When keeping our eyes keenly fixed on God's plan, not ours, very quickly we come to realize that he is the hero of our story. David is not the hero of chapter 1, although it may seem like it. God is. God is fulfilling his purposes through David, but he, David, is by no means the hero of the story. When we keep our eyes focused on God, we see that he is the one that is working, that he is the one leading us to fulfill his purposes, and therefore he is the one that deserves the glory. Not the Amalekite, not you, certainly not me, not David, but always God. Always God. God must be the driving force before you in leadership. Keep his plan as your focus. Keep his plan, not your own. See, David, he took on the posture of submission and trusting in God. Never taking matters into his own hand. Never insisting that he takes the throne. He waits patiently on God's timing. And isn't that what Jesus did in his ministry? All through Jesus' life and ministry, we see that Jesus kept his eyes keenly fixed on God's plan all the way through. Already at the age of 12, Jesus tells his parents after they have been looking for him for three days and they find him in the temple and, and Jesus says this to them. He says, didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? At the age of 12, Jesus was already about his father's business. 12 years old, the powerful message from a 12-year-old. Everything that Jesus did was to bring glory to the Father. Every miracle points to God. Every parable points to God. Everything that Jesus did, he kept his eyes focused on God's plan for him and God's plan for mankind, even to the point of death. And he did it for you, and he did it for me. Listen to the deep agony that Jesus went through as he kept his eyes focused on God's plan. Listen to these words spoken by Jesus in the Gospel of Luke just before being arrested. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed. Father, if, it is, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Be encouraged in your leadership. Whatever that may look like for you. Knowing that God has a God-sized plan. And it is way better than your man-made plan. Be encouraged. Submit to God's plan. He is in control. Will your leadership be easy? 
No. It won't be. Was it for David? No. Was it for Jesus? No. So consider yourself in good company. But in the tougher times, like David, like Jesus, keep your eyes glued to the master. And if you are not sure yet what your plan is for life and, and how to live in your leadership role, wait upon the Lord. Wait. Dig into his word. Fervently pray. Seek wise counsel. Call up one of us pastors so that we can talk about it. Talk about it in your youth mentorship group. Bring it up in your life group this week and talk and seek the counsel of other believers in Christ. Then wait. Then wait on God's timing to reveal his plan for you. And when he has made it clear to you, run. Run with confidence, keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus who is the author and perfecter of your faith. Because he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he now sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty for you and for me. Well, the second lesson that we can learn from 2 Samuel chapter 1 is this. We need to keep our heart focused on the person and their story. We need to keep our heart focused on the person and their story. If you still have your Bibles open, take a look at verse 11 and 12 and verse 17 and 18. And this lesson, it resonated with me. I was convicted with this. This is something that I need to work on myself. Here's what it says in verse 11. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan. And for the army of the Lord and for the nation of Israel. Because they had fallen by the sword. David took up his lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan. And he ordered that the people of Judah be taught this lament of the bow. It is written in the book of Jashar. In the book of Shasar is the old Hebrew hymnal of psalms, hymns, and poems. You see, David understood the significance of the anointing of, of Saul as king. David, he, he sat at his table. He broke bread with Saul. He married his daughter. And in all the stories of how Saul was going after David to kill him, it is so important for us to remember and to understand that David still had a relationship with Saul. And such a wonderful relationship with his son, Jonathan. You know, it's interesting in times of mourning, when a loved one passes away, it's the good memories that come to mind first, isn't it? We always think of the good that was there. And this is precisely what's happening in the story. See, because David, he would have so many bad memories of Saul. Just take some time in, in your life group or wherever to read, reread 1 Samuel. Out of pure jealousy, hatred, spite, and ungodliness, Saul took away David's family, his career, his security, and the best years of his life. Until the very end, he was unrepentant of everything that he has done to David. And so hearing the news of his death, David remembered that Saul was king of Israel. That made him his king, which means that he was subject to his authority. These verses showed that David and his men displayed immense sorrow. They spent time mourning the passing of Saul. And David, who was soon to be king, was not ashamed to show his emotion. 
He wasn't ashamed to mourn in front of his fellow warriors. Because you see, David chose to become better instead of bitter. His heart was focused on the memory of who Saul was instead of who Saul became. In his time of mourning, David kept his heart focused on the person and his story and not the manifestation of that story. You see, Saul was ridden with jealousy, hatred, and spite, and he had a heart of ungodliness. But like all of us, Saul didn't start out that way, did he? Like you and like me, Saul started out as a baby in the arms of his mother. And Saul grew, he was polite. Saul was caring, he was responsible, and he was an incredibly reliable person. He had everything going for him, didn't he? You would look at Saul and you'd think, now, now that is a fine specimen right there. Men of all men. And God saw this, and he saw that he had good qualities that would make a good leader. And therefore, God chose Saul to be the first king of Israel. And then it started, didn't it? Pride snuck in and, and began to do its thing. Hatred in his heart it began to fester up. And jealousy, oh man, was he jealous. And when all these things started to come together, everything for Saul started to spiral downhill from there. You know, there is always a story that makes the person who they are. There's always a story. David remembered the story and he mourns and he laments deeply despite the miserable man that Saul became. The throne that was promised to him some 20 years earlier is now vacant. It was there for him to take. But he was in no rush. David pauses he stops what he is doing. He orders his men to drop their spears, to lay down their shields, and to take time to mourn. He has no thought of himself at the moment. All he is thinking about is about Saul and his story. I'd like to take a moment to read for you David's lament. It's going to be up on the screen. And I want to encourage you to listen carefully, to see if you will hear one negative word from David towards Saul, the very man that tried to kill him. Listen to his lament. A gazelle lies slain on your heights, Israel. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. Mountains of Gilboa. May you have neither dew nor rain. May no showers fall on your terrace fields. For there the shield of the mighty was despised. The shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of David did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and admired, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. 
how the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of a woman. How the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war have perished. Did you hear a negative word? Did you hear it? I hope not, because there isn't one. Not a single negative word about the man that tried to kill him. David saw the man, not what the man became. And by no means does that ever excuse all the evil stuff that Saul did, but it shows that David was able to keep his heart focused on who Saul was, the person, and not what he became. If you want encouragement in your leadership, you need to look past the miserableness and see the person and take time to understand their story. Pause. Take a moment to stop what you're doing and listen to see the person for who they are. No matter how miserable they have been to you, no matter how much extra grace you have already shown to them, pause. David mourned for a man who tried to kill him. Would you do the same? I've asked myself that question, and I wasn't overly impressed with my answer. See, everyone has a story. Teenagers have stories that often contribute to the reason why they might be rebelling at school or at home. Broken marriages have a story. Happy marriages have a story. Illnesses have a story, and long life has a story, and unwillingness to forgive has a story. And the very person that complains to you and tells you that you're not doing something right has a story. And the reason why it has a story is because everything revolves around people. The story doesn't take away the consequences, but it helps us, doesn't it? It helps us to understand just a little bit more. And when you and I, when we take time to get to know the story, things for a brief moment, for a brief moment, begin to change. We start to hear the heart, and we gain a little bit of understanding, and we slowly come to realize that they are not all that different than we are. They're not that different. Our stories, they may look a little different, but our hearts, we all long for the same thing, isn't it? We all long for the saving work of Jesus Christ. And I believe that's what caused David to mourn the way he did. Because it's only God that could make David mourn for a man that tried to hate, kill him and hated him so deeply. And we, when we take time to realize that we're not all that different in our hearts, whether that be a guest that sleeps at our shelter or the individual that broke our window, you or me, we come to see very quickly that God is the hero of our stories. Because it, it is only God that can fill the longing in our hearts, isn't it? It's not drugs, it's not sex, it's not addiction, it's not power, it's not food, it's not screen time, it's not busyness or bitterness. It's only God. In David's case, as it is with ours, it is only God that can turn our mourning into dancing. It is only God that can soften our hearts long enough to see the person and to hear their story. Isn't that what Jesus did? 
Isn't that how Jesus lived his life? Jesus kept his heart fixed on people and their story. Do you remember the account in history where the Pharisees brought the adulterous woman before him? They were ready to humiliate her, to bring her down to her knees and to stone her because of the messiness of her life. But listen to the beautiful words of Jesus. This is what it looks like when you're more concerned about the person than the messiness. Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and, and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw the, a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older one first until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declares, go and leave your life of sin. This is all about the person. Not the situation at hand. It is about the woman and her story. What about in Luke where Jesus is hanging on the cross in pain and agony? Remember that story? When they sat at the place, when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people, they stood watching. And the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saves others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar. And he said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was a note written above his head, a sign which read, this is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and save us. They were mocking him. They were thinking the worst of Jesus. They were literally standing at the foot of the cross watching him die in agony. And Jesus looks down from the cross and he sees the people. He sees the people. And he knows their story. And he says, these bold words, forgive them. Forgive them. Story after story in Jesus' life is played out this way. He has you in mind. Your name is written on the palm of his hand. He knows your story. He knows it inside and out. There's no hidden secret with Jesus. There are no skeletons in your closet that he is not fully aware of. And yet, in the midst of all of that, he says to you and he says to me, come. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Friends, take time 
to pause and to see the person. Take time to listen to their story. Oh man, it's not always easy. It's not. It is so much easier to brush them aside and not give them the time of day. Especially, isn't that true? Especially when they've offended you. It's tough. But together, together as a body of Christ, we can learn from the life of David that points us directly to Jesus. And yet, we know that those moments, they're going to be tough. It is going to be hard to look past the messiness. And we can't see past the messiness and see the person for who they are. And then we, once again, we need to be reminded of these words in 1 Chronicles 29 where it says this. Yours, Lord. Yours is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. And you are exalted as head over all. You see, in chapter 1, we were able to see David keep his eyes focused on God's plan and not his. We were able to see David keep his heart focused on the person and the story of Saul through his lament. So as I close this morning, please be encouraged in your leadership. And may I be so bold to ask of all of us this morning that we graciously hold each other accountable to each other. Can we hold each other accountable to keeping our eyes fixed on God's plan and not our own? Can we hold each other accountable to allowing each other the freedom to hear the story and to understand the person? Can we do that together? Because when we do that, that is when the name of Jesus is made great in our home and in our community and in our church. Can we do it together? Can we hold each other accountable? To God be the glory, always. Well, you've been listening to the latest message in our series through First and Second Samuel, tracing the life of David, the Shadow King. You can find more information about this series and our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time on the weekly sermon at Gateway.